Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Hi, it's Ronit. A quick announcement that the short story collection I wrote, Home is a Made-Up Place, has just been released and is available wherever you get books. So if your bookstore or library do not yet have it, you can request Home is a Made-Up Place and they should be able to get it in pretty quickly. Now, it is a short fiction collection, and I realize that this is a memoir podcast, but I have written both, and so if you are interested in fiction and you like short stories, you might enjoy the collection. In addition, if you are in the Seattle area, I have a live book event at Third Place Books in Ravenna, and that will be on Tuesday, April 4th at 7 p.m., and there will be books for sale and a book signing afterward. In more book news... I will be in New York and Connecticut in April as well for a couple of book events. So if you are anywhere near Woodstock, New York, or Cold Spring, New York, I will be there on April 15th in a daytime event at the Golden Notebook and an evening event at the Butterfield Library. Lastly, on April 20th, which is a Thursday, I will be in Norwalk, Connecticut, at the library for writers and conversation and that is an evening event i will list all of these on my website under services and then scroll down to events and i'll also have a quick link in instagram at ronit plank in my bio that's where you can find information on my memoir on the short story collection how to order other episodes of Let's Talk Memoir, and any other recent projects. I think that's it for now. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for sharing the podcast with your friends. There has been a recent uptick in downloads, and it seems that more and more people are tuning into Let's Talk Memoir every week, if not every day. So if you like this show, please keep on sharing and telling your writing friends about it. Post on social media. You can even leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That's really Really helpful as well. Thank you again, and without further ado, here is this week's episode. This week, there will be two episodes of Let's Talk Memoir. Episode 34 will drop on Tuesday, and episode 35 will drop on Thursday. This is a special occasion, and I will go back to the regular once a week on Tuesday's schedule after this week. Today, my guest is Jasmine Falk Dickerson. She's a social and behavioral researcher, writer, speaker, and cultural identity advocate. She draws motivation from her personal story as well as her education to advocate and promote social justice and understanding. Born in the Middle East to an Italian mother and Arabian father, she immigrated to the United States in 1999 and pursued her education in Wyoming and Washington State in writing, equity, diversity, and leadership. Jasmine's areas of expertise are DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, ethical leadership, cultural diversity and social identity, women's issues, and oppression. Jasmine is also versed in issues regarding Arab women, Arab culture, social cultural oppression, religious oppression, and the Middle East. In her memoir, The Last Sandstorm, Jasmine highlights the colorful and challenging experiences of her upbringing in Saudi Arabia, which led to her harrowing escape in her 20s. 
Jasmine is also the host of the podcast, I Want You to Meet, where she engages with artists and activists in inspiring and educational conversations. She also guest lectures and guest speaks at events, colleges, and retreats, and works at the Evergreen State College in Washington State. Welcome, Jasmine. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so happy that you're here, too. And I was reading your book, and then when I was reading the end, I realized you are also in Washington State. Mm -hmm. And how long have you been here, actually, since you moved from Wyoming? Uh, Let's see, 12 years. Oh, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, so much happens in your memoir, and I was hoping, I know it's hard to cover all of it in just a little summary, but if you could share a bit about The Last Sandstorm. Absolutely. Um, so The Last Sandstorm, is, uh, it is a memoir because it really focuses on the first 25 years of my life. And that was the time that I grew up in Saudi Arabia as the child of an Arab father and an Italian mother. Uh, my father uh, was from Saudi Arabia and he's passed away now. And my mom is Italian. And so uh, The Last Sandstorm sort of depicts this very challenging journey being the product child of the first generation of bicultural and bi-ethnic children in a very conservative and very uh, sort of secluded Saudi Arabia at the time. This is the 70s and 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. And and a lot goes on in there. There's so much that you touch on in the book because there's the gender roles and mm-hmm. there's also the feeling, the feeling so much of being other because mm-hmm. it, and it's so unique. I mean, I don't know that much about Saudi Arabia or Arab culture, just a little bit, very little bit. But even I felt struck by the idea that you would have an Italian mom, you know, mm-hmm. living there and having her culture still within the house in terms of the food you ate and sort of the way she approached the world and yet also being very compliant and and at peace, perhaps, would you say, yeah. with the culture oh, yeah. of your father? Yeah, very much so, uh, which which was something really to admire. But as a young woman, it was something I resented. I've learned to admire and respect that and also to recognize that was her journey. But for me, it was an absolute struggle. Yeah, and especially because she was a writer as well. So that lens, like, it makes me think of an independent thinker. It makes me think of an artist, a creative. And it is so interesting to think that she was able to make a home in Saudi Arabia back then, especially. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I still can't wrap my mind around it. (laughs) But I admire her for that. Yeah. So can you talk about when you knew you needed to write this book? So when I when I left, I mean, it's it's obvious that's part of the story. When I left Saudi Arabia, I really wanted to leave everything behind and just start a fresh new me, uh, a new life. And it's not that I wanted to necessarily cut all ties with my own personal heritage, but I really needed that distance. And I arrived in 1999, not ever anticipating that something like 9-11 would happen. Mm. So when that happened, I felt that sense of urgency and internal urgency, but really the community was so desperate to understand that part of the world a little more. They asked me questions. I was invited to speak on panels. And I just realized that there was sort of a responsibility with, you know, my own story. And as I started to do more and more of that, I recognized that people really were hungry for a better understanding outside of what the media only shared, sort of separating the politics from actual people. And, and, you know, as as the years went by and as I got more and more immersed in DEI work and recognizing kind of the importance of culture and speaking your your truth and all of that uh, and meeting people from all kinds of backgrounds and different stories, I realized that penning the story was really important. But the other part where I felt really, really pulled was the fact that there is such shift and change in the world in general 
But in certain parts of the world especially, and we see this even here in the United States where history is being rewritten Mm. and the truth is no longer upheld as the standard. And because I come from a part of the world where very little is documented historically, especially from a woman's perspective, I felt the, 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 the utter and sheer burden of the responsibility of documenting that. Mm-hmm. And when you arrived in the States, I mean, I'm curious, when, you, you know, in Italy, the times that you spent in Italy as a child and then uh, maybe as a young adult, and then also in Wyoming and now in Washington, how has the reception been? I mean, do you note any specific reactions that you've gotten over time and, and how that's changed over the decades because you're a Saudi woman, a Saudi Italian woman? Well, so when I was in Italy as a child, and even now as an adult, I was there just this past summer after many years, I feel at home there more than anywhere else. I, I, in, my, in my heart and my soul, I've always felt the most at home in Italy. Uh, there's just something between my own sense of self and the Italian culture that just merged so beautifully. In the United States, I will say, the first 10 years when I lived in Wyoming, I, I just I never felt any different. There was no treating me any differently because of my culture. In fact, there was maybe a curiosity and definitely an admiration. Um, But this was all pre a lot of what we're dealing with today in the world. Um, The Pacific Northwest, while I've also found home here, being extremely sort of progressive in the way they view the world, sometimes the, (laughs) the approach to my own identity and my own story uh, comes across as almost um, inappropriate. And I know it, it's not intended to be that way, but there is more of this this desire to be so uh, PC that sometimes it verges on ignorance, where there's an interpretation of what, you know, the, the, the liberal mindset thinks that hmm. we ought to treat people from different backgrounds and cultures. And, and I, I will, you know, say I, I do identify as a liberal, but the, there, when, when it comes to political social issues, there's this like bigger issue while on a personal level, my encounters with people has always been, I, I've been, I've been lucky, I'll say that, where I really suffered the consequences of discrimination was actually growing up in Saudi Arabia as a woman, mm. and even as a half Italian uh, child, mm. as, as a non-pure Saudi child, that's where I felt maybe the most discrimination in my life. Wow, that's so interesting. So I'm really, I was curious what you said about the people who approach you, can approach you because of their I would say maybe hyper-liberalism sometimes yep, in the Pacific yep. Northwest. Can you give me an example of that? Because I'm trying to wrap my head around how that plays out for you. Yeah, I think there's this understanding of, I mean, I'm just going to jump right into it. Um, people here really misunderstand uh, the difference between ethnicity, between race and culture. There's just like this very, very blind observation about it. And then there's this a filter that they choose to label on their own through which they see things. Um, I'm never asked how I identify or how I see myself. I'm I'm immediately uh, labeled, and the assumption is made that I am, you know, referred to as a woman of color, uh, mm-hmm. and that is not my actual identity. That's not how I identify, uh, and I, there's no insult to that. Actually, I'm I'm proud to be a, a you know a human in the world that is you know multicultural and and multi-ethnic. Uh, but when when the label goes to uh, race. Where I worry is that then that falls into the category of true and, you know, and, and problematic appropriation. My story and my journey has not led 
itself in consequences of racial discrimination. And so to, to pin me in that category mm. is a disservice to the actual cause that I'm so passionate about and very devoted in. And so I can say my experience in the world has always been from the privileged Caucasian perspective, even though I am, you know, tanned and I'm olive skinned and I'm Mediterranean and Arab. Um, but the, the struggle that I want to focus on for my own personal identity has more to do with the fact of my cultures the oppressive and restrictive and repressive mm. culture, as well as the woman and gender inequality issue. So that's one of those things where people are just like, you know, make these assumptions. And it's like, have you asked me, you know, what I am or who I am or how I see myself? There's this immediate assumption. Believe it or not, in Wyoming, that was never, ever the case. Wow, that is yeah. surprising. And also, I know. it was a long time ago, right? I mean, not a long, long time ago, but when you first arrived there, you were, you know, what, 25 or something? Yeah, is and I, right? I would have, absolutely. And I would have expected being in Wyoming, where I probably yeah. stood out a little more being, you know, more exotic looking, that people would have made more assumptions and yeah. treated me a little differently. And that was absolutely not the case. I never, ever felt that or sensed that ever. Um, wow. But I, I do here in the Pacific Northwest. And it's not a negative thing. It's just a very unusual and mm -hmm. and I hate to say it's a very ignorant uh, mm -hmm. position mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and the world has changed a bunch since you left Saudi Arabia and I was wondering if you've ever been back and that might end up being a really silly question I'm not sure I mean have you gone back <laughs> no I have not gone back and I I don't intend to um yeah I I I left now I think things have opened up in a way that is very different from when I left but there are also a lot of cautionary uh, circumstances that keep me a little more reserved. And, you know, I didn't leave with the blessings traditionally that, you know, at the time would have been required to leave under those circumstances. And so I have no need or desire to go back. Mm -hmm. um, the political position is, is really uh, delicate and the social mm -hmm. position has changed a lot and there's a lot more openness in the social atmosphere. But the there are other circumstances that hold me in a more weary position. Mm. Can you glean what the gender divide is like there now compared to when you were living there? And are you able to communicate with people that you left behind in a free way? Yeah, I, uh, the communication is no problem at all. I still have friends there. I do have some, you know, family members there as well. And um, women since 2018 have been given permission to drive. Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. was the only country in the world where women couldn't drive. So that has changed for women. My understanding is also there's less on the restrictions that women have, have to be under a guardianship of a male, that there is more freedom also in how they dress. So there have been social changes that I'm aware of. And, and frankly, I'd like to say I'm celebrating as well, because any kind of movement in the direction of women's liberation is, is a powerful one. And so I do celebrate that. And I, I'm glad to see that that's happening. There's still though that caution around true freedom of speech and true non-censorship of, of being and mm -hmm. of thought and of intellect. And I'm, you know, I come from a very intellectual family. So those are important values for us. And just as much as the physical freedom um, is valued, I also value that intellectual freedom. And so I don't mm -hmm. think we're there yet. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, I'm going to have you read this excerpt that we talked about and introduce it. Before you do, when you look back on the person you were when you lived back in Saudi Arabia and you were growing up, do you think that girl, that woman could have fathomed that you would one day really document your experience and be doing the work that you do? 
<laughs> That's such a great and very endearing and humbling question. Um, no, absolutely not. I never thought I would even be living the life that I'm living, let alone documenting it and talking about it so openly, freely, and committedly. No, not at all. I, I'm, I'm beyond thrilled that I am at this point here and now doing what I'm doing, but it's extremely humbling to realize that. Yeah, and it makes me also think about all the people who are still there who might have those wishes and impulses that you've found yourself with that you turned into a reality who can't, you know, or haven't been able to leave. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, family family dynamics are so, so powerful in that culture. And, you know, very few find that courage and that, that impulse to just go against everything uh, and I feel for them. I really do. Mm-hmm. So would you set us up for the passage you're going to read and then go ahead and read it? Absolutely. So I do obviously go over the the uh, timeline and the journey from childhood to basically young adulthood in the book. And the section I'm going to read is a part where somewhere in the middle of the book. The book is written in three parts. Uh, the middle part talks about my my teen years, and the last part talks about my adulthood. Um, and somewhere there in the middle, I do marry uh, a young Arab man, a young Saudi man. Um, and that relationship is somewhat challenging because on one hand, he was raised in the United States, and so he had a solid foundation in westernized standards. And on the other hand, we were living in Saudi Arabia, we were immersed in that culture, and he was starting to have this sense of like identity as a Saudi Arab husband. And so we started to feel some clashing there. And uh, this is a section of um, a time where we were taking a trip to Oman um, in the, you know, in the Middle Eastern region, which I'd never, I had never been there. And so I was excited to visit another Arab country, considered a little more progressive and liberal than Saudi Arabia. Women are not required to cover there. Um, but my husband's intentions were a little different. And so here we go. <laughs> this request came out of nowhere. I was alarmed and worried about what it meant for me and my future. I wanted to go to Oman. I saw this as an opportunity to rebel because I feared a potential pattern was unfolding. What's the worst thing that could happen? He would ultimately divorce me? After tasting freedom, I didn't really care. My pride was holding me afloat, and then my unwavering desire to assert myself as a strong-willed and empowered woman was more important than anything else I could think of. Negotiations were out of the question, because that would give him too much power. I decided to let it go and plotted my retaliation for the right time. We arrived in Oman. I wore a denim dress and a scarf around my head. We checked in at the hotel and contacted Ahmed's distant cousin, Lana. Years ago, Ahmed told me he had a crush on Lana. I was not particularly jealous, but curious. We arrived at the family's palace, which made it clear they were beyond wealthy. A butler in traditional Omani clothes, with a distinctive colorful turban, opened the door, and Lana came running to greet us. She hugged Ahmed, a very unusual, in fact, an appropriate gesture in Arab customs, and me. She was warm and animated. She was also wearing a leather miniskirt and a tank top. Her long, dark, curly hair was uncovered. I was steaming, boiling, stewing. I was pretty much overcooked in every sense of the word. I felt humiliated, insulted, irate. This is not who I am. Lana was meeting a meek, conservative wifey, a totally bizarre version of me that Ahmed had fabricated. It was lunchtime, and Lana suggested we meet some of her friends at her favorite restaurant, a lively Mexican joint in downtown Muscat. Let's carpool. I'll drive. Wait at the main gate. I'll bring my car around, she said. 
Within minutes, a two-door bright yellow Mercedes 300L rounded the corner of where we waited. The gull-wing doors automatically opened, and as Ahmed pulled the car seat forward so I could hop in the back, Lana warned abruptly, Ah, ah, this is an all-round girl power car. Boys in the back. Fuck yeah, I'm going to like this bitch. I threw the headscarf in the back of the car next to Ahmed and fused myself to the passenger seat before buckling the seatbelt. Rebel act number one, check. My westernized husband had lived in Saudi Arabia too long. He had gone from being the carefree, liberal, Americanized dude to a professional Saudi banker preoccupied with a culture of faith-based crisis. I was seeing the signs, but this trip opened my eyes to the impending changes that happen in a relationship, especially as growth and evolution unfold in opposite directions for each member of the twosome. By now, I figured Ahmed was disenchanted with his Omani cousin, Lana. He didn't appreciate seeing her hug and kiss all her guy friends and gulp down two margaritas during lunch. But I found myself feeling more and more comfortable around her and her wild community. That night, we received an invitation to a party hosted by one of her rich friends. We arrived at the elegant house in a lush area of the affluent neighborhood and pulled up to valet parking. As I got ready to get out of the rental car, Ahmed reminded me of my headscarf. Are you fucking serious? I thought, my voice screaming in my head. In a calm outer voice, I said, no, I don't think so, but thank you for asking. Jasmine, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, he replied through clenched teeth. Still keeping my infamously aggravating sarcastic cool, I said, tell you what, you go to the party, and when Lana asks you why I'm not with you, tell her it's because you have a disobedient bitch for a wife who is officially not a hijab wearer and who refuses to follow your orders and cover her head. That was the first and last time Ahmed tried to impose his dress code demands on me. He knew I was fully loaded and he was the perfect target. He decided his image as a man was more important than the image of his wife in a hijab. He never asked me to cover my hair after that, and I never again allowed any man to tell me what I can and can't wear. Rebel Act number two, check. Wow. And here we go. Thank you so much. It seems, it just seems... For me, with my limited knowledge and and just what I've learned, you know, through media and very, very brief little anecdotes, you know, I don't have a lot of experience, as I mentioned, Mm -hmm. with with your culture, with your culture of birth. It seems almost uh, like scary, inconceivable, really brave that you were able to behave this way. Yeah, I, you know, I I wasn't in Saudi Arabia when I did this. I was in Oman, where, you know, it's a little more progressive and liberal, or at least it was at the time. And I also, we were about four years into our marriage, I had already started sort of asserting myself as a woman, Mm. and and he knew who I was. This was not a surprise. And so I say early in that passage, what's the worst that could happen that he was going to divorce me? I mean, I knew there wasn't any other, you know, ramification. He, he was not a violent man. He was a kind person. But in that moment, it was pretty much a, a, a power struggle of the egos. Mm, yeah, and it's true. He was very westernized, actually, for a Saudi man. I mean, yeah. that, you both came to that marriage with that understanding right. of being more modern. Are there parts of your story that you, significant parts of your story, you deliberately left out of the memoir or have you incorporated most of the the giant or events and the most significant events in the book? Yeah, that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that. You know, a memoir is a tricky thing to write because it is something that you want to document in all of its colorful 
ingredients while also being mindful and thoughtful that you want to kind of stick to the point. So, of course, there are many stories and anecdotes that I had to leave out just because of time and space. And when you're a first-time writer and first-time memoir writer, of especially being unknown, you want to keep it engaging without giving too many details so that the reader's like, well, I don't even know who you are. Why am I interested in every detail? Mm-hmm. So that was that was one of the challenges of really being mindful of where to expand and where to hold back. But the other piece that I intentionally left out, not so much left out, but uh, sort of framed the story around me. This is my story. This is my emotional journey. Uh, I tried to really keep it as a coming-of-age uh, struggle, something that all of us can relate with, even if we had very different upbringings. I really wanted to keep the uh, the political, the inflammatory, the kind of the tabloidy version that could have been very easily written, I didn't want that to be the focus, that my intention is not to go after anyone specifically or any government or like I did not want to have that kind of a story. I was I was trying to really stay focused on the struggle, the human struggle, um, still highlighting, obviously, the atrocities that need to be, uh, you know, talked about and, and addressed from the human rights perspective. Uh, but I tried to keep it really uh, honest and really fair. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you write in the epilogue that you could, quote, never compare the challenges of my early life with the challenges of marginalized Americans. I'm hoping you can reflect on that and talk about uh, talk about what your thoughts are on that and also what raising three sons mm-hmm. in this country has been like for you because of your background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. That's a really thoughtful question. So when I say I can't compare... Um, the reason why I say that is because while I, while I get really indignant about how we still remain today unfocused on the injustices that women face in the world, period, and especially in parts of the world like the Middle East, where in my opinion, women are deeply silenced and censored, where I say that I cannot compare is because on a materialistic level, on a get-all-my-needs-met basis, I had all of those, and I was extremely privileged. Um, Mm. You cannot compare, obviously, the financial stability um, of, you know, someone in my position and with my background and upbringing to someone that here cannot get the basic needs of being able to buy bread and milk. Mm -hmm. And those happen a lot in very marginalized communities. Still today, in a country like the United States, it blows my mind. Mm. So from that point of view, I can't compare. I also can't compare the, you know, horrendous history of slavery and indigenous destruction in this country, in those communities, to, you know, me growing up in a country that is considered mine by heritage to some extent, or at least half, and where, you know, there is a sense of stability far away from war and struggle. So Mm -hmm. those are kind of the main points. Um, I can walk anywhere in the world and sort of, you know, assimilate and pass for, you know, any particular privileged, educated uh, culturally, you know, sound and uh, sort of default accepted person. Mm. But the story in and of itself, being that woman, that, that invisible story, and that, that's the hardest thing. You know, as an identity advocate, I always say the obvious identities we can talk about all day long. It's the invisible identities that we often forget to address. You know, people have invisible identities that are probably their greatest pain and their greatest sorrow. And we just dismiss that because by default, society only judges what they see. So that's, I hope that addresses that part of your question. Yeah. And and as far as raising sons, I will say, you know, I, 
I, I, and when I say this, I don't joke. I'm very serious when I say that I really hoped that I would only be a mother of boys. I think I would have been horrifically scared to raise a daughter in this culture with the freedoms, having not had that mm. experience with that kind of developmental stage in my life. I would have been really scared because I would have had no point of reference on one hand. On the other hand, I really wanted to raise feminist boys. I wanted to raise men who had a very strong sense of self, uh, who had more of a fluid approach to gender identities and who did not see the separation between male and female as hard as society puts it, but rather, um, you know, really approach the world with this gender fluidity that has deep respect for women. Uh, and mm-hmm. I hope I hope I'm on the way to, to accomplishing that because my sons are pretty remarkable. Mm. Yeah, I was so happy to hear that you had those children. And, um, you know, as a mom myself, and also really interested in families, I was just really excited about that to know that Mm. you had these children and that you had the chance to to mother them. Thank you. So so I hope it's okay to ask you if if you can share a bit about your second marriage, you know, and how you've come to understand your love story with Daryl, and your your life experience as a freshly free woman at that time. Wow, that was a really challenging time um, from the personal perspective of my own coming to my own self. Um, right. And as a little bit of background, I guess I should say, and, and yeah. you can correct me, you left Saudi Arabia and, and basically immediately connected with this man you'd met in Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. who had been very for a very brief time, a couple's counselor for you and your first husband. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of part of your escape plan. And you were in love. Mm-hmm. And we learned in your memoir that that marriage doesn't end up lasting. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I hope the reader will be or the listener will be interested to read more about that. Absolutely. And so I'm going to I'm going to be delicate with how much yes. I share because I want to leave a little bit of mystery. Mm. Um, but indeed, there there is this uh, this moment where the love is so powerful that I feel like I can conquer the universe. And that is exactly, you know, what you see in the movies, what you think Mm -hmm. the movies are trying to represent. That's exactly how I felt because I never thought I'd feel that way. And so the love was so powerful that it, that it pushed me to be as daring as I was to Mm. escape and do all those things, even though I was already contemplating that even before meeting him, Uh, that was just kind of the push I needed. But when I arrived here, I think, um, that lack of experience of negotiating for myself, of speaking for myself, of talking to men, of, you know, walking into a store or even going to college and being able to sort of assert myself, that was, those were all things that as strong a woman as I was and as independent as a teenager as I was, when I was put to the test, I felt so fragile and so vulnerable. Um, And it, it was, you know, a few years of really, really finding uh, and I'm, I am a naturally very in my head person. And so finding that space of grounding myself was really hard. But I also love dancing. And I talk a lot about dance in the book. And so I think, you know, going to college and studying dance initially, I found that footing, not just metaphorically, uh, but physically, you know, being one with the earth and, and finding that confidence to anchor myself. Um, so that was, I think, I look back at that time, and I'm so not that person anymore mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. so many ways, and yet forever that person uh, in many other yeah, ways. Yeah, and, and I, I, I have to say, I hope it's okay, I want to share that I would have been surprised if that had lasted, mm. because it was based, not that those relationships can't last, but 
your life experience and all the change you were going through and the circumstances of your meeting and, you know, all of those things that you were able to latch onto to help save you would surprise me if, you know, it's hard to make those kinds of things work. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm getting into the weeds with relationship (laughs) talk here versus memoir talk. But having having been a student of this and having been married myself, I thought, wow, how is this going to go? Even though I'm a helpless romantic, hopeless romantic. I said said (laughs) hopeless romantic. (laughs) I think think that was a Freudian slip because I think we're both helpless and hopeless when we do fall in love. I think I think you are so right. And, And one of the reasons I can say that that is true, especially for women, is that we, once we find our true selves and the power of our own independent selves, I think it's really hard to remain anchored in a relationship that came to us as a platform to, 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 to discover ourselves. And so many women leave marriages or marriages end because yes. it tends to be the woman that sort of self-discovers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, by default, we're told that we need to get married to, you know, be a wife and have children. And th- that pressure on women is so, so profound that I think society is changing enough now where we're not seeing that way. Even those of us who are, you know, in traditional relationships and marriages with men are starting to see that that, that is not the case. Mm-hmm. Yes, 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 absolutely. And and I know my mom was, was in that camp as well. Of, I mean, we could go on and on. So mm-hmm. in our final mm-hmm. few minutes, can you... Yeah. Can you just give a shout out about your podcast and and why podcasting means so much to you? Yeah, absolutely. And and I do want to thank you for having me. This has been such a wonderful experience and a pleasure to be on your podcast. Thank you so much. Um, so I do have a podcast. It's called I Want You to Meet. It's on all streaming platforms. Um, I basically touch upon other people's stories. Writing my own memoir made me realize how powerful stories are. I meet so many incredible people in the communities that I belong to, uh, much of which is also in the music community because my sons are musicians. And so there are incredible stories of artists and activists and sheer powerful human beings. And the podcast really touches upon all these different stories and backgrounds from all walks of life. Um, and I, I invite you to listen in because it's, it's a great way to uh, not only find inspiration, but find our own voices in other people's stories. Mm-hmm. Yes, I find the same with doing this podcast. What are some of your favorite memoirs or the books that you've turned to as a writer that have really helped you? Yeah. Uh, so I, it sounds very cliche and maybe even super mainstream to say this right now, but the book that inspires, inspired me a lot in recent time that you know I read while I was writing my own was Becoming by Michelle Obama. That book just like turned me upside down. I read it twice. I've read many memoirs over the years. Another one is uh, Home, Julie Andrews' mem- memoir, which is also her early part of her life, which I absolutely loved. Uh, I've read so I love reading memoirs and biographies, but Becoming was so powerful because there were so many things that I read in that book that I could just see and hear myself in, and that was really, really powerful. Her bravery and her acknowledgement of where she stands in the world was so remarkably uh, relatable. Mm, thank you. Yeah. And what advice would you give to memoirists working on their manuscripts? So the, the biggest advice I would say is be honest. Um, don't be shy to go places where you think either no one wants to hear that or do I really want to say that? Uh, you just have to shed any and all kind of uh, 
embarrassment. You're going to have to go there if you want to be engaged and you want to be relatable. It's not for voyeuristic purposes. It's really just to be as honest and vulnerable because that really, really is relatable. Um, I I had a little bit of a cringe moments when I was writing the story in some parts. And then I was like, you know what? I love when I can connect to a writer that way. So I would hope that I can create the same with my reader. Right. I love that. So, okay, where can people find you, Jasmine? Where's the best place? The best place is my website. It's www.jasminefalkdickerson, all one word, dot com. And I'm sure it, it, the spelling of my name will be hopefully visible. In, yes, in of the, course. Uh, yeah. I'll put it in the show notes. And you're also on uh, Instagram because we've connected I am. there as well. Yep. Same thing on Instagram. I do have a, I am not very active on Facebook, but I do have a Facebook author page. But Instagram, my website are the two places where I engage with the most. Okay, great. Jasmine, thank you so much for being my guest and for really getting introspective with me and and combing through these roots and really helping me understand what experience you lived and and how you are living now. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for doing this incredible work. and, And I wish you the very best. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.